We come to chapter 7, verse 2. It's the beginning of the next section. And it says, A quite long time had passed some twenty years. And all that the ark stayed in kareth All the people of Israel longed for the Yahweh. And Samuel said to all the people of Israel, If you are really turning to Yahweh with all your hearts, remove from you, among you, the foreign gods and the images of the Asherahs. Give your hearts to Yahweh and serve only him. Then he will deliver you in the hand of the Philistines from the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites removed the Baals and the images of the Asherahs, and they served only Yahweh. Twenty years have gone by that the Ark of the Covenant has been living in this city, Kirithajirim. Remember when they took it to the first city, Bethshemesh, they didn't treat the Ark with total respect, and so they were condemned. So they sent it to the Kirithajirim, and they treat with respect, and they were blessed. And for twenty years it stays there. This is a long time. So this is the whole pretty much rule of Samuel as judge. The ark stays there. Samuel then seizes the opportunity to bring them to revival. And what he basically says is, if you really, they want to, they're, they're, they're realizing that Yahweh is superior. They're realizing Yahweh is able to defeat the enemy and nobody else has. They failed miserably. The ark, so to speak, failed miserably. Yahweh is the only one that succeeds. So now they want to come back to Yahweh. So he says, if you really want to do this, you must repent. And true repentance is getting rid of your gods. Now this word Asherah and Baal, Baal is a storm god, remember. And he is the god of storm, rain, and fertility of crops. And his father was Dagon, the grain god. His consort... His wife and his mother was Astarte. Astarte is pretty much the goddess of fertility as well, but usually more in like motherhood and sexual fertility. Now, all through your Bibles, it's usually called Asherahs. And the reason it's called Asherahs is actually that's not her name. You'll never see that word appear in any other document outside the Bible. It's Astarte. And the reason it's Asherah in the Bible is that God is taking the word Astarte and the Hebrew word shame, and mixing them together to create this word Asherah. So basically he's mocking it and saying that this is actually a shameful, disgusting fertility goddess that he um, totally condemns in every kind of way. In fact, there might be some evidence that during the time period of the judges, the Israelites might have actually began to worship Asherah as the wife of Yahweh, showing how completely disconnected they were from Israelite theology and biblical thought, which might be all the more reason to attach the word shame to her name where he doesn't do that to Baal. Because the word Baal just means Lord. And that's all it really means. So he says, if you really want to turn back to Yahweh, you must get rid of these gods. Remember, true repentance is turning away and burying the sinful things in your life. And we saw back in the book of Judges that... They cried out to God during the time of Jephthah, and God says, I'm done with you. I've saved you over and over and over again, and you have just keep going back to your gods. If you want help, go to your gods. Let them save you. So they got rid of all their idols, and they fasted, and they made sacrifices, and Yahweh forgave them and saved them by bringing Jephthah. Here he's making it very clear that if you want to actually come back to God, you have to get rid of your idols. And this is so important to understand that repentance is not just I'm sorry. Repentance is not just I love Yahweh. Repentance is obedience. And this is important because this is going to be a theme that's going to be carried on throughout Saul's life.
is that true devotion to Yahweh is obedience. So he says, get rid of this. So they did. And Samuel said, verse 5, Gather all of Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh in your behalf. After they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. They fasted on that day, and they confessed there, We have sinned against Yahweh. So Samuel led the people of Israel to Mizpah. Now Mizpah is a place where he's going to bring repentance, and they make what was called libation offerings. Libation is when you pour out wine or water on the ground as an offering to God. Most of the time it's wine. And every sacrifice required a, a wine libation offering. That was detailed in the book of Numbers, not so much in the book of Leviticus. It wasn't very common that people did a water offering, but water was sometimes done. And this is a big deal because for us, we just turn on the faucet and water's always there. But in the ancient world, and especially in Israel, where they only get water for about three months out of the year, rain, and that's all they have for the rest of the year, pouring out water is like a big, big, big deal. And so this would have been a huge offering to God of basically what they're showing is that water is, and wine, because water is rare, so you drink a lot of wine. Water and wine are the signs of life, the abundance of life, the necessity of life. And so by pouring this out, you're showing that you're pouring your life out for God. You're giving your life to God, so to speak, and it belongs to him. And so they're burying their idols, they're getting rid of them, and they're pouring their lives out and offering to God, and they're repenting. Verse 7, When the Philistines heard that the Israelites had gathered at Mizpah, the leaders of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the Israelites heard about this, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the Israelites said to Samuel, Keep crying out to Yahweh on our behalf, or Yahweh to our God, so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh on Israel's behalf, and Yahweh answered him. Now this is huge, because the last time the Philistines attacked, they said, let's get the magical box, the Ark of the Covenant. That will save us. This time they're saying, keep crying out to Yahweh for us. Keep praying to Yahweh. So they are seeking out Yahweh's prophet and they're seeking out Yahweh for their rescue, not the Ark of the Covenant. And that's a big deal. They have learned. And it's all because Samuel's seizing this opportunity. Now remember, I think this is one of the most important, crucial times in Israelite history. Because we have come from the book of Judges. And those who were there for the book of Judges, it was just downright vile, nasty, and disgusting. And it was a horrible time period for women, for leaders, for the people, for the priests and the corruption, everybody. We were told that they were becoming just like the Canaanites. They were operating just like Sodom and Gomorrah, all that kind of stuff. And what's so interesting is that the time period of the judges is way worse than anything in America. Way worse. The time period of the judges was a time period that even Hollywood hasn't been brave enough to put in movies yet. And yet, Samuel will single-handedly, in his devotion to Yahweh, in his submission to Yahweh, will bring a revival. He will seize this moment where God demonstrated his glory, and he will seize the hearts of the people, and he will start a revival, turning most of Israel back to Yahweh. And bringing them out of that vileness, out of that corruption, that 
that the time period of David, even Saul and his corruption, is nothing compared to the time period that judges, even his sins. And he's going to bring a revival. And this is so crucial for us to understand because I know as we look at America, America is not going in a very positive direction and has not for a very long time. And it seems like the slope is getting steeper and steeper and steeper as time goes by. And it's very easy, and I hear a lot of Christians say like, oh, it's the end of the world. Well, not really. It's just America. And there are a lot of bad things happening. A lot of Christians give up hope, and they're like wondering when Christ is going to come back, which is a valid wondering thing and a valid thing to look forward to. But there's this very doom and gloom thing because we're, we're so used to this booming economic culture, and we're coming out of that. And you need to understand, and we're looking at the news, and it feels like Christians are in a minority, and Christianity is definitely mocked, and God is definitely marginalized, and Jesus is just a word. And it, it's very easy to feel depressed. It's very easy to feel like things are changing, and they are. But you need to understand something. If, if one man can seize the things that God is doing and allow God to use him to bring a revival from the time period of the judges, imagine what the church in America, which is way more than one man, can do in this time period that's nothing like the book of the judges. And I tell my students, this is why I teach. If, if I didn't have hope, I'd be in a bunker in Alaska. But the reason I teach is because I believe that these kids can change things. And that's why I'm there. And so this, I think, is one of the most positive, hopeful things in all the Bible that Samuel is going to pull them out of this, and they're responding. doesn't mean they're going to be perfect. <laughs> it doesn't mean change happens overnight. But a revival is beginning. So he offered the offerings, and it says that Yahweh answered him. Verse 10, As Samuel was offering burnt offerings, the Philistines approached to do battle with Israel. But on that day, Yahweh thundered loudly against the Philistines. He caused them to panic, and they were defeated by Israel. And then the men of Israel left Mizpah and chased the Philistines, striking them down all the way to the area below beth Car. So God thundered. And by thunder, that means literally. He showed up in the storm. This is a very, very, very common way for God to show up. In the book of Job, it's called the whirlwind. And Ezekiel is called the whirlwind. And the, the, the narratives is called the, the storm. But he shows them the storm. And this is so important for you to understand because they've been worshiping Baal. And he is a storm god. And the minute they get rid of Baal, God comes in and thunders for them. Now, Baal has never thundered for them. Baal has never defeated an enemy for them. No matter how many times they've sacrificed their children to Baal, no matter how many times they've worshipped Baal, he has never shown up and done anything for them. Yet within moments of them getting rid of their idols and making a sacrifice to God, an animal, not a child sacrifice, God immediately responds in their favor and gives them victory over the enemy. And so we see that they are responding to Yahweh, and thus Yahweh is delivering them. But do not forget that Yahweh is the one who acted first. God did not wait for them to come to him before he did something. God did something with the Ark of the Covenant, and he defeated the Philistines to open up their eyes to the reality of who he was. Then they responded, and then he came in and aided them. God always acts first. We very rarely, just in our own mind, think, oh, I'm going to become an awesome Christian today. Usually God is already doing something in our lives, already waking us up in some kind of way. 
And so they defeated them, striking them down. Now notice, it does not say that Israel went in and clobbered them. It says that Israel sent such a panic among the Philistines that they began to go into a panic and run and flee. And then as Israel faithfully obeyed Yahweh, they chased the enemy down and then killed them. This wasn't a frontal attack. This was them running away attack. And that's important because it's how God won every battle for the judges. Barak, when he finally got the courage to show up, the enemy went in a panic and ran away and he chased them. When Gideon finally went through all of his testing and all of his feet dragging and showed up, God made the enemy go in a panic and they began to run away and he chased them. This is usually how he defeats the enemies for them. It's never usually a frontal attack. It's usually them running and Israel cleaning up. And so God gave them victory in that day. The cities, verse 14, of the Philistines had captured from Israel were returned to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, Israel also delivered their territory from the control of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel led Israel all the days of his life. Year after year, he used to travel the circuit of Bethel, Gilgah, and Mizpah, and he used to judge Israel in all these areas. Then he would return to Ramah, because his home was there, and he also judged Israel there and built an altar to Yahweh there. In the previous chapters of 3, we saw him operating as a prophet. And he led Israel as a prophet, and it says that the word of God became common in the land because God spoke continuously through Samuel, and not one of his words failed. But now we see him operating as a judge. And he's operating the judge that Samson should have been. And so notice that Samson's calling was that he was to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Yet he never did that. He defeated the Philistines on a few occasions, but never delivered Israel. Now Samuel's actually fulfilling that calling. And so now he's serving as a judge. And remember, judge is a local political military leader, not just like a circuit court judge. And basically, he is judging all of Israel. And what makes Samuel unique is that he almost has like a king-like status. He's not a local judge just serving in certain area, and there's other judges all throughout Israel. He has become the judges of judges. And he is serving as a judge everywhere, and he just keeps traveling around the entire country, hearing court cases, leading the people, defeating enemies, pushing back the Philistines, and retaking cities that they had captured under Joshua, but had lost during the time period of the judges because of their lack of faith. And so he begins to restore Israel back to what Joshua had originally conquered and taken for Israel. This is a huge, huge change. Now remember, God has already been leading them and pushing them towards kingship. He is the one who's initiated kingship. He's the one who's leading them towards kingship. But they cannot have a king if they don't first have a prophet. And what Samuel's showing is that he has the right to be a prophet. He has the right to be a prophet because God has called him, and his words that God speaks through him are always coming true. That's his valid validity. That's him on the divine counsel of Yahweh. But he's also showing that he has the ability to lead them militarily and politically, which means he has the experience necessary to lead and guide the king as well. And for whatever reason, God is not going to choose Samuel to be the first king. But he is showing that Samuel is definitely qualified by being a prophet and a judge to have the word of God and the experience to guide the king. 
And this is important because his deliverance, his revival, that he's allowing God to work through him, is the key to saying this is where we're going as kingship. And Samuel has the right to be the guy. And that's important. Because now what the, and this is so crucial, because what the author has done is he has established that Samuel is the guide for the king. Samuel is the word of God to the king. Samuel is the advisor to the king. That is what the narrator is establishing here. So that brings an end to the first division.